Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. We're back after a short break. In the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at Ottoman decline with Dr. Yaqub Ahmed, liberalism with Dr. Shadi Hamid, and I'm going to be hosting a discussion between Mustafa Akil from the New York Times and Professor Ovamir Anjum, looking at Mustafa's new book and whether his claims towards an Islamic reformation stands up to scrutiny. We also have a great series of guests lined up, including Aisha Hassan from Al-Qarawiyun Institute. Please do visit our archive on thinkingmuslim.com and I would like to ask you to recommend this podcast to free other people and send your reviews to Apple. This helps us rise in the rankings and enables us to pass this content on to others. We operate on a shoestring budget, so any contributions will be grateful to help us widen the team and allow us to publicize this project further. A link to contribute is in the show notes. Masjid al-Aqsa is a sacred mosque on a sacred site, observed by Muslims to be the third most revered religious site in Islam. In this episode, I speak to Ustad Iyad Hilal from Al-Arqam Institute about how Muslims should understand this masjid and its precincts. He takes a look at the contemporary attempt to reduce its importance in the eyes of the Ummah and reflects on his own family's experiences after the Nakba in 1948. We also cover the history of Islam's entry into Palestine at the time of the second Khalif Umar Anhum, and Iyad talks about the palace situation today as Gaza remains under siege and Al-Aqsa comes under renewed threat from right-wing extremists. Ustad Iyad Hilal, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's my pleasure and honor to be with you today, inshallah. Well, it's great to have you back with us. Now, I want to talk about Palestine today and Al-Quds and Al-Aqsa and its meaning from an Islamic perspective. And I want you to give uh, me some understanding of the history uh, to the point at which we arrive at today. But let's first start with your own experiences. The Israeli occupation began in 1948 and uh, your family were affected by this occupation. Can you explain how 
uh, the Nakba affected you um, and your family and uh, what your family had to go through, I suppose, um, after uh, this occupation was consolidated in the 50s and 60s. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. I was born actually in 1949. And I still started from childhood. I kept hearing my mother, my father, my grandfather. He was born one year after the Nakba. The Nakba, like you said, was in 1948. And I was born one year after that, 1949. The situation was very bad, economically, everything. For my family, I am from a town, a unique town. It's called Kalkilia. All of their land was taken away. They didn't take the, the town itself, but they took the, 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 all of their uh, land, the, the farms, farms, everything, orange groves, all of this was taken. We continued living uh, for, for, for family reasons, uh, we moved from Jerusalem, from Calquilia to another town. We moved back then to, uh, to Jerusalem, to Amman. Went back to Jerusalem in 1956 and came back to another town, to Ulkarim, where I graduated my high school back in 1966. It's, it's unfortunately very bad, very tough experience. The Nakba itself. What is sad is that people who ran away from, from the Israelis lived in the, in the in camps. In Tulkarim, there was a camp, a refugee camp. In some other towns, also you have refugee camps. People, unfortunately, discriminated against the refugees, Palestinians. Not, not, not anymore, but then... Refu- the, the refugees or the Lajin were discriminated against. It's as if it's not good enough to have the Nakba. Yani if you want to have a friend from the quote-unquote Lajin, your family will tell you, why are you working with this guy? He is from the Lajin. As if they are stigmatized, as if it is a stigma to be from the Lajin. This happened. Some people don't want to admit it. We have to be frank, like I mentioned. Not all our history is bright. And this is one dark chapter in the history of the Palestinian quest question. And I mean, I remember 1966, I finished my high school. Uh, we had many friends, alhamdulillah, who lived in, quote-unquote, the Mukhayyam, the camp. But uh, other people wouldn't tolerate this. But by that time, alhamdulillah, people got more educated. The situation, alhamdulillah, became uh, very, uh, very normal. Until now, in my memory, I have very close friends. Some of them passed away, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive them. And some of them I lost contact with. They are very nice and very fine people. MashaAllah, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen. It, it, it came, the, the, the Nakba came at different levels. Uh, I want to look at the circumstances surrounding uh, the uh, conquering of uh, Al-Quds, of Palestine, and uh, what motivated those early Muslims and why Umar ibn al-Khattab anhum entered uh, Al-Quds. So can you take me back to the history first? Just give us a short summary of uh, the circumstances surrounding uh, the, the conquest of uh, Asham and, and Palestine. The Sahaba, you know, after the death of Muhammad وسلم, continued the policy was initiated by Muhammad وسلم, is to engage the Romans. Why did he start engaging the Romans? It's not out of nowhere. He decided tomorrow, let me go and deal with them. But rather because the Romans started many things uh, against Muslims. The Romans at that time, they used to be colonial power in Bilad Sham, by the way. They are occupiers. They're not from the area. Their oppression to people in, in Bilad Sham, in Syria, Jordan, this, this territory and in Egypt is very well known. And uh, at one time, the, the Roman governor in the city of Ma'an, nowadays in the southern part of Jordan, he accepted Islam and he sent a letter to Muhammad So the Romans killed him. And the Romans issued decree to, to go after any Muslim, any person converted to Islam within the, that region. And they started mobilizing forces to attack, to attack Medina. So Muhammad وسلم, is not pacifist. We didn't stay quiet until they come and kill. So he engaged them in, 
and sent uh, the expedition, what was called Ghazwat Mu'ta, followed often after that by Ghazwat Tabuk. So otherwise, there would be no Islam because they were preparing to attack Muslims. Uh, and before his death, he ordered what is called Jaysh Usama to be sent there. After his death, Abu Bakr Siddiq insisted on sending Usama's uh, expedition. And uh, uh, Abu Bakr Siddiq was two years, Allahum Ardaan. Actually, before his death, he sent after uh, Jaysh Usama, he dispatched four uh, expeditions uh, to, the, to the region. One to Palestine, one to Bilad al-Sham, one to Jordan, and so on. Now, when they entered Palestine, when they entered Jerusalem, again, uh, people actually help Muslims against the Romans because they know the way Romans are treating them. Let me just give you an example in Egypt. We have the Coptic Church in Egypt. At that time, the Romans went after the Pope, the Coptic Pope. He went in hiding. He was not able to do anything until Amr ibn al-As liberated Egypt and he sent to Umar ibn Khattab about the status of this Pope. So he told him, keep searching until you find him. So he got, he, he gave, he met him later on. He found him, he met him and he returned him to his church. So people saw the way Muslims are dealing with them and they saw the Romans, the, the way they are dealing with, with the Romans, with, with them. So in Jerusalem, that's before Egypt, go back to Jerusalem, the church knew about Umar al-Khattab. So they told him, the, the, the Christian clergy told uh, Muslim uh, army, we are not going to, to turn the keys of Jerusalem to anyone except if the caliph himself comes to us. Uh, Abu Ubaidah uh, and Khad Walid, the Muslim leaders, wrote to Umar al-Khattab and Umar al-Khattab went in that trip to manage the, the, the procedures. And there was what is called Al-Uhd Al-Umariya written. So Umar, it's not Umar al-Khattab who insisted to go, but rather the church, the clergy in the church insisted they want Umar al-Khattab to come in because they don't want to turn Jerusalem to anyone except to the caliph. Because again, his, his reputation was very well known, mashallah. So they wrote, the covenant was written. I mean, how would you address the claim that the Muslims were occupiers? They did not look at Muslims as occupiers. But unfortunately, because we are living in an age in which the facts are twisted, a person like Yusuf Zidane says that Jerusalem, uh, the Christians there consider Muslims as occupying force. No, they don't consider Muslims as occupying force. And if you don't believe it, go and ask the Christian priest Manuel Masallam and Anton Atallah. They are Christian priests. They say we want the Umar covenant to be maintained. We appreciate the Uhda Umariya, the Umar covenant. No one looks at the Muslims as occupiers would say this because Muslims never acted as occupying force. And when the Salat al-Asr came, when he was in the church, they offered him to pray there. He said, no, I don't want to pray there. They said, why? He said, because I don't want Muslims to think that they have right in this place since Omar prayed there. So he moved and he prayed next to that. Until now, if you go to the area, if you have a chance to visit Jerusalem, you have Kanisa Turkuyama. Next to it, just a wall, you have Masjid Omar, where Omar prayed. They saw the justice of uh, of, of, uh, of Muslims manifested in many areas, even during the wartime. When Khalid ibn Walid was entering a, a town, he has to relocate after people in that town accepted Muslims and accepted to be citizens and paid the dues. And uh, Khalid ibn Walid sent Abu Ubaidah, he told him what to do, I have to withdraw. He told him, give them the, the, the money back. So he met them. He told them, I have to withdraw for strategic reasons. I cannot stay. Here's your money. They wondered, who are those people? They, they know that if they give one penny to the Romans, they will not get anything uh, back. But now volunteer, he is voluntarily giving them their money back. So they told him what to do. 
but we don't want you to 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 withdraw. He told them, you, you become Muslims. So he, they said, we will become Muslims and defend the town with you against the Romans. This is not occupation force. And tell me about the religious significance of Al-Aqsa in the Islamic texts. That's, the religious significance is in the fact that if you pray in Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, you will be rewarded 500 times. But Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa is not uh, a quote-unquote structure. It's not stones. It's not walls. It's a place. So that's why nowadays, if you look at the map, you'll see Al-Haram Sharif area. If Salatul Jumu'ah, as an example, extended to be beyond the walls of Al-Masjid, it is Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, even if it reaches to Damascus Gate. Like in Mecca Al-Mukarramah, as far as the Jama'ah goes, it is Salah considered as if you are praying in Al-Masjid Al-Haram. So this is the significance. But regarding uh, being a Muslim land, it's not different than any other piece of property. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Now, some people bring some reports that it is the gate, the gate to the heavens. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Ardul Mahshar, the place in which people would be resurrected. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. But these reports are not part of our aqidah, system of belief. We have to believe in Quran. We have to believe in Aman al-Rasul ma'azil alayhim rabbihi wal-mu'minun. So we have the articles of faith, believing in Allah, believing in the messengers, believing in the angels, in the books, in the prophets, in the qada and qadar. But we don't have to believe that Jerusalem is the place of the resurrection. This is not part of our system of belief. But if some people uh, take it in this way, that's fine. There is no, no problem in, in, uh, in keeping this in mind. But the significance is like any other Muslim land. So it's not different than Cairo. But at the same time, nowadays, after uh, the so-called Abraham, Abrahamic uh, Accords signed, some people started saying Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa is like any other mosque. In one sense, all mosques are sacred. But no, you have three special mosques with a special status. So if you want to travel, with the intention of traveling, you just travel, like we said, the hadith, uh, you shall set out for travel except for three mosques. The hadith of uh, the Prophet Sallallahu In this sense, yeah, it has significance. But in other words, it's like any other Muslim land. But Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa is not like any other mosque because those three mosques are, have a special status. Now, some people would say, no, you cannot call it Al-Haram. Any mosque is haram. Any mosque has special rules. There are special rules related to, to, to any mosque, common among all three mosques and other mosques in the world, thousands of mosques. You cannot trade in, in inside the mosque. Uh, you cannot uh, have, uh, if you are in the state of itikaf in any mosque, you cannot approach your wife and so on. This is general among all mosques, but there are special rules assigned for these three mosques and special rules assigned for al-Masjid al-Haram. One rule uh, common for among all three, uh, two rules uh, uh, applicable to those three mosques is the prayer in all of them will be multiplied at different ratio, depends on the mosque. Another rule common among those three mosques, they are the only three mosques uh, where, where you are allowed uh, to sit out for travel with the intention of traveling uh, to that mosque. You, you cannot say, I want to go to the sole intention of praying in Hagia Sophia Mosque in Istanbul. But you can say, I want to travel for, for, to Istanbul for tourism, to see friends, to buy a home, to make a trade, and I will pray in, in the Blue Mosque or in Hagia Sophia Mosque. That's fine. But you can say, when it comes to those three mosques, I want to travel for the sole intention of praying in one of those three mosques. No other intention. That's the, that's, this is different. So there are common rules applied to all mosques. There are special rules applied to those three mosques. And when, within those three mosques, there are special rules applied to each, to Al-Masjid Al-Haram. Okay, so we know that um, Masjid Al-Aqsa has a significance in Islam and it's... Um, uh, it is the first Qibla and it is the place where um, our rewards are multiplied when we uh, when we pray in that mosque as well as um, it's one of the free ma- uh, masajid that we uh, can have an intention to travel to. 
Now, now, uh, and the place of the Isra, the destination of Isra, and 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 there are other virtues which you've mentioned, which you know one can one can believe in, one can understand and accept, uh, but these are the core virtues of uh, of Jerusalem, of Masjid al-Aqsa, or Beit al-Maqdis. However, that that significance uh, that is attached to uh, this region, um, it, it it is fair to say that in Islamic history, this was somewhat uh, diluted i mean i'm i'm thinking now about uh, the crusaders and their um, annexation and and uh, conquering of of uh, of jerusalem and and parts of asham uh this was a, a disaster for for muslims but the consequent reaction from the muslim world at that time was muted there didn't seem to be um at least at the very beginning stages you know the the caliph uh was um uh, was reluctant to to uh, uh, to to act, and the narration of Qadi al Harawi comes to mind, the Imam of Qadi of of Damascus, who tried to implore the the Khalifa to uh, respond to the annexation of of uh, Al Aqsa by the Crusaders, uh, but um, uh, he gained no luck, and it took another maybe a hundred years before um, uh, concerted efforts were made to to return. Uh, the um, uh, the masjid back to to Muslim rule and return Jerusalem and Asham back to Muslim rule. Can you take us through that? This is also something that needs <laughs> independent episode. Really, mashallah, I appreciate your questions. First of all, we need to set some facts straight. Not all of our history is is bright. We have dark images, dark chapters in our history. We have to accept this. We shouldn't present our history as fanciful as we wanted to be. And this is one dark chapter in our history. The Crusaders took place for 93 of Hijrah. At that time, if you look at the geopolitical map, first of all, the Abbasis were in Baghdad and the Fatimites were in Cairo. Now, the Abbasis themselves, if you study the history of Abbasi Caliphate, it is divided into four stages. The first stage ends with the year 232 of Hijrah, or 847. And the second stage ends up with 946. The first stage is the golden stage. And the third stage ends up with 1055. And the fourth stage, the final stage, which is the Suljuki stage, ends up with the year 1258 when Baghdad was conquered and attacked and occupied by the Mongols. The crusader, as we see, it happened in the fourth stage, when the Ottomans, when the Abbasi state, uh, state was, was so divided. Not only this, even when we say Al-Asr Seljuqi, the Seljuqi era itself was divided into uh, what's called the Great Seljuq in Iran and in, in uh, in Khurasan, and then the other Seljuk in Iraq. Same at the same time. So you have Seljuk Sham, the Seljuk of uh, great Seljuks of of Iran and Persia, and you have the Abbasis in Baghdad. They have no power whatsoever. The ruler has no power whatsoever. The situation was so weak to the point that when the Crusaders came, the Seljuk Sultan Berkiaruk. He ruled from year 1094 to 1104. Was, didn't do anything to help the soldiers of Syria because they sent to him. The, this uh, Berkyark was from the great soldiers and the Sultan of Syria at that time wanted help from, from this uh, soldier of the great soldier uh, rulers. So he refused to the point that uh, it says that Berkirak had little reason to help the Seljuks of Syria, who fought among themselves. Even the Seljuks of Syria fought among themselves, and you have the Seljuks of uh, the great Seljuks of Persia and 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 uh, and uh, Iran uh, or uh, and Khurasan. So the Seljuks of Syria were div- divided and fighting among themselves, and the north part was ruled by Fakhrul Mulk Ridwan, and the southern part. That Sham, Sham Mamluk uh, was uh, ruled by Shams al-Muluk at the Qaq. And they are uh, fighting 
with each other. So uh, later on, when the Crusaders entered Syria, Ridwan shifted his allegiance from Berkyaruk to the Fatimid Caliphate, who held the Crusader, the Crusaders, because well, the power is now with them. So let me shift my loyalty to them. It's worse than our situation nowadays. So the entire scene was pathetic. Uh, within this <laughs> context, uh, when, the, uh, when they entered Bilat al-Sham, like you said, the, the Qadi, Harawi, approached uh, the Caliph, who, who was, he was handicapped, he cannot do anything. He just sent a letter to the soldier ruler, Berk Yaruk. He did nothing too. Then another year, he sent him another letter. He did nothing. One historian, Ibn al-Imrani, talking about that area, he said al-Mustadhir, who was the, the caliph, was busy with his own affairs, attached to the luxury life and just enjoying life. He has no, no motivation to do anything. Within this context, actually, it happened. What is more painful is that even after Salah al-Din al-Ayubi, who is subject for attack, again, by Yusuf Zidane and others. When he liberated Jerusalem, he liberated Jerusalem uh, in the year 1185. You know how many times it was turned to the Crusaders after that? Three times. Muslim rulers will turn it to the Crusaders. The first time was in, by Al-Malik Al-Kamil in the year 1229. But it was liberated by a sultan uh, Al-Nasir Dawood ibn Al-Mu'addam in the year 1239, who himself turned it away back to the Crusaders just to go against his cousin, Al-Sultan Muhammad Salih Ayyub. And then Muhammad Salih Ayyub elaborated finally and completely in the year 1 to, uh, 1244. So Salah al-Din liberated it in the year one, uh, 1185, and the Sultan Salih Ayyub liberated it finally in the year 1244. Between those two years, it was turned to them twice. It tells you about the state of Ummah at that time. It's like Muluk al-Tawa'if in, 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 in Spain, divided, uh, approaching the, the Spanish uh, church uh, against each other. So the same thing happened in Bilad al-Sham. But one good thing actually uh, happened is that yes, Muslims were defeated militarily, but not intellectually. Alhamdulillah. To the point that the Crusaders themselves were influenced by Muslims. Usually the occupier will influence the occupied, but now it's contrary. Muslims who were occupied influenced the Crusaders and influenced the Mughals. The Mongols. By the way, Mongols, Baghdad was occupied in the year 1258 after liberating Jerusalem with the final liberation uh, with 14 years. Okay. And the Khilafah is gone in Baghdad. Yet the Mongols later on became Muslims and they went back home carrying Islam to their people. So even in this dark era, we have some bright and Alhamdulillah I'm hoping things. Muslims were never divided intellectually, were never defeated intellectually. Nowadays, we are defeated intellectually, unfortunately. How do you mean they were not defeated intellectually? Muslims never, at that time, Muslims were proud of their deen, their Islam. And they have, they feel that they have the mission, the responsibility of carrying Islam even to, to the Crusaders. You know, it was said that the Crusaders, when they brought their families with them, and the, the Crusader ladies saw how do Muslims respect uh, uh, Muslim ladies. They became uh, envy and they asked their, their husbands, treat us like what Muslims treat their, their, their wives, their, their ladies. You know, and the, you know, the Muslim lifestyle, high personal hygiene, cleanliness, respect, all of this carried, was carried to Europe, you know. Uh, Europe at that time was in the Dark Ages, as we know. They didn't even have uh, uh, bathroom or, or restrooms, in, neither in public nor in private places. They took it from Muslims. You know, I was watching one documentary about Paris. They used to throw the human waste in the streets. When they came, they started cleaning up 
because they were influenced by Muslims. Muslims were able to, to, to influence the crusaders and the Mongols. The Mongols became Muslim. But now we are questioning Islam nowadays, questioning the Sunnah, questioning the validity of Quran, the relevance of Quran, uh, questioning the uh, ability of being ruled and ruling uh, by Islam, uh, questioning the ability of providing a vi- uh, viable uh, Islamic economic system. We try, we are in the you know, defensive uh, mentality, trying to defend so many things because we, we, we don't, yani actually, okay, how to deal w- w- with, with, uh, with Muslim sisters now we are taking it to the defense. How to deal with this? How to deal with that? We are in this defensive mode. We don't have the. Uh, we didn't accept Islam, Alhamdulillah, as a clear message that is calling us to think and ponder and and reach from this to certain conclusions, so that we will be able to proceed. If we are taking it, we are taking it as dogma. We are taking it as as uh, in a very closed-minded. We are taking it as rituals. We are not taking it comprehensive. We'll have some people praying and cheating, praying and and uh, committing all, 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 all other sins. So we have this double standard in our behavior. Now let me ask you about the Jewish migration to Palestine. I understand that uh, the Jewish presence in Palestine predates, of course, the State of Israel and uh, predates uh, even the British mandate and the Balfour Declaration. Um, and, and, and many w- would suggest that uh, Jews have been in Palestine for a very long time, and so somehow that uh, gives uh, a right for the present occupation. Uh, can you explain uh, from a historical perspective uh, when the Jews arrived in Palestine and whether that claim can be made? Let me just give some, some general facts. The Inquisition in Spain, they kicked Muslims and Jews out from Spain. So some Jews moved to Morocco and others settled in different places within the Ottomans. Because at that time, Europe used to discriminate heavily and severely against Jews. We know this. So they only found Muslim land as safe heaven to stay in. So some of them moved even as far as Turkey and some of them remained in in Morocco. Now the settlement in Palestine started by the year almost 1855. It was funded by Moses Montefiore. And actually, there is a quarter in Jerusalem by his name. And then the year 860, another settlement in the north Palestine near Sea of Galilee. That's before Sultan Abdul Hamid. So here you mean from Europe? Yes, from Russia, from, from Europe, from uh, different areas, yes. The Jews before, they came as individuals. But now you have settlements in Palestine. In the year 878, the first settlement, Pitah Tekva, was established by the Mediterranean. There is a group called Havivi Zion Movement, which is Lovers of Zion, established in the year 1881, when the massacre against Jews happened in Russia. This movement was established to save the Russian Jews and they approached the Ottoman uh, uh, ruler to allow Jews to migrate in Palestine. He told them you can stay in any place except in Palestine. And then in the year 1882 to 1903, there was increase in the immigration of Jews to Palestine. Now, the Ottomans worked on three tracks against this movement. Number one, issuing laws banning settlement in Palestine. Number two, Jerusalem is now connected directly to the caliph, not to the ruler, not to the wali, and encouraging Muslims to move to live in Palestine. They did so in order to uh, deal with this. Then comes the Sultan Abdul Hamid. The Sultan Abdul Hamid, uh, he, he banned selling properties to non-citizen Jews in Palestine. And then in 1884, he issued a law stopping Jewish immigration to Palestine. Another law, no Jew is allowed to stay in Palestine for over than a month. Now, these things are not taken against Jews for being Jews. We know that Islam is against anti-Semitism. These steps are taken for political reasons. 
That's why they said, if you are not citizen, you cannot stay here. So if you are Jewish citizen, you stay. So it's not because you are, you are Jew, but rather because you have a political agenda. That's what the, uh, Abdul Hamid was opposed. So these procedures continued until 1914. In the last stage of Ottoman, there was a lot of corruption and it created many damage. Some managed to sell their homes. There was uh, land and, and inquisition uh, happened it's some, by different people, different regions, some people from Lebanon, some people from Syria, and some people from Palestine. So the land purchase happened from Palestine is very limited scale, more and some Christian families from Lebanon and Syria. During that time also, here comes Theodor Herzl, you know, the leader of the Zionist movement. He requested to meet with Sultan Abdul Hamid, and this request was declined. So he delivered his effort, uh, his offer to Sultan Abdul Hamid through his close friend, uh, Philip Nulinski. That happened back in May, 1901, Sultan Abdul Hamid, uh, the offer was to pay the Ottomans foreign debts and to provide propaganda for the Ottoman Sultan in Europe in exchange for offering Palestinian lands to Jewish settlements and transferring governance to the Jewish people. Sultan Abdul Hamid rejected this offer saying, I will not sell anything, not even an inch of this territory because this country does not belong to me, but to all Ottomans. My people want this land with their blood. We give, we give what we have the way we got it in the first place. If you want to take it, you will take it after we offer our blood for it. So Herzl repeated his offer once again, but the answer was no. Then comes the next step, the Young Turks connection. The Young Turks connection at that time with Freemasons, at that time Freemasons was strong, not, that, no, not like nowadays. Nowadays is more or less a social club. And then they have also uh, some connection with Zionist leaders, which uh, is Emmanuel Carrasso, and he was a, a friend of Grand Vizier Talat Pasha. And also they have connection with Balfour, the British uh, foreign minister. It was this group who managed to remove Sultan Abdul Hamid from the power because of his stand. And this happened in 1909. And after that, you consider the, the, the Ottoman uh, Khilafah destroyed at that time. The, the death certificate was issued in 1924, but the Ottoman Khilafah was destroyed way before that. After that, uh, the story is, uh, is very well known. The Arab Revolution, so-called Arab Revolution happened, and the plans to Balfour Declaration was actually in, uh, uh, issued. So you have multi-tracks, one, one, one uh, connection, British connection with the Zionists to manage to give them Balfour Declaration to settle in Palestine. Another track is to manage to create revolution against uh, Ottomans. And then the first world preparation. All of those happened simultaneously. It ended up with what uh, we know that Palestine was occupied by the British and they managed to increase the Jewish migration to Palestine and going against anyone from the original people, uh, Palestinian people there, if they found even a knife at one time, carrying a knife and in the street would be considered a crime. And of course, the British, when uh, during the First World War, they occupied Palestine. Uh, there are many accounts that the general in charge at the time, General Allenby, saw this as a victory uh, for the Crusades. Yeah, General Allenby, when he entered Jerusalem, he said, now the Crusader war is over. Uh, there is a paper, a book, Palestinian papers, the seeds of the conflict. It's a documentary book uh, written by Doreen Ingram, compiling uh, British documents till I think 19... 27. You find out how did, unfortunately, Al-Husseini, the brother of so-called Mufti, Amin Husseini, was welcoming Alimbi, a sheikh. It tells you how, how bad some people, you know, how bad, what level some people reached at. And so we fast forward to today. I think it's fair to say that uh, Jerusalem is now 
de facto in uh, Israeli control. And uh, the Israelis are, in, a, in an incremental way, are removing the Palestinian, the Muslim presence from Jerusalem. Uh, can you explain how this has happened and what, if anything, we can do about it? Well, Israel had a very consistent policy and they worked on it for for long period of time. Jerusalem is considered occupied town. This is even the United Nations, what, what the United Nations says. This is what UNESCO even says. UNESCO said that even the part, that part, which is Western Wall, is part of the town of Jerusalem, which is occupied land. And if you look at the Western Wall now, there is an open area. That area was, uh, there were people there, their homes there. It's called Hayul Magariba, the, 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 the Moroccan quarter, because people from Morocco came and lived there. And we lived there uh, maybe one year, I remember. But after 1967, they demolished it to, to make it open area for uh, Jewish worshippers to worship at uh, the Western Wall. So they took many steps gradually. Number one, they annexed the town. They considered the town as part of Jerusalem. But they never gave people of Jerusalem the full uh, rights given to the Israelis. Actually, Israel is apartheid regime. Even Arabs in 1948 who remained in their towns, in their, like Java, like, like Lod, like Nazarite, like Akron, like Haifa, all of those people are discriminated against. You know, but they issued a law recently that the, uh, about the, uh, the ethnicity of the state, that only ethnic group which has the rights in the, in the state is Jews, only official language primary is the Hebrew, but Arabs are second-class citizens by the law. They don't have the same rights. They don't enjoy the same rights as, as, the, as Jews. That's up in 1948. They used to keep people living in cages. Till now, you have photos in the city of Java. They have uh, barricades and, and fence surrounding the quarter where Arabs used to live in. Because Arabs used to live in the entire town of Java, so they kicked them out from different homes and put them in just one quarter. Uh, and they had a fence around the city, and you cannot go outside the fence without a permit from the military uh, ruler. Although they carry uh, Israeli passports, Israeli citizenship, they go to the Nagar and they kick people out from their tents. Oh, we want this piece of land. Uh, we need it. It's not yours anymore. It's, it belongs to us, to the state. So what they did, what they are doing in Sheikh Jarrah, they did it exactly in some other areas in 1948. So they annexed the town and they expanded the municipality borders to include other areas and they started building settlements surrounding Jerusalem. And then if you are in the, from the West Bank, you cannot live in Jerusalem. If a lady from Jerusalem is married to a man, uh, her husband from the West Bank, well, you have to go and join your husband. For you in Islam, women join their husbands. You are not allowed to get your husband to come in. But uh, of course, they established the, the law of the return to, the, to, to Jews, what is called the aliyah, I think, if I'm not wrong. Upon your arrival, will be given uh, Israeli citizenship. You don't need to live for quite a few years as a permanent resident, and then you get the citizenship. Right from day one, you will be a citizen of the state, and the Palestinians are not allowed to live in Jerusalem. So if you are going outside Jerusalem for some period of time and you didn't return within that period of time, then your permit of residency will be cancelled. My wife is from Jerusalem and she lost her uh, presidential permit because she was not able to go back at this, within the same uh, period of time. And then when she went after a couple of months, they told her no entry, to even to, to the West Bank, let alone to, to Jerusalem. This is the policy which they are following. Who to blame? I don't blame them. The blame is on us.
We Muslims who don't set their priorities straight. We keep fighting on trivial issues, forgetting the major issues. The blame is on us who, some of us, accepted to be Zionists, more the Zionist rulers or leaders. You know, the one who tweets that, okay, let, uh, I'm, I'm willing that the bombardment kills even more Palestinians. You know, when someone tweets this, you have the right to differ or to disagree with Hamas. And I disagree with Hamas. But there is difference between disagreeing with Hamas and between uh, uh, appreciating and likening the killing of people, saying that the Palestinians are still out. No, the Palestinians are not still out. And I'm not talking now about here about uh, as Palestinian. Uh, you know, uh, if someone did something wrong, it doesn't mean that you put this mistake on every people, on all people. So the situation is difficult, but inshallah, I mean, we hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give us the chance to, to change what is within ourselves so that the entire situation will be changed, inshallah. Well, that neatly brings me to my next point about Palestine and the future. Now, we've got many ahadith which uh, talk about Palestine as being the abode of the, a future caliphate. We have uh, hadith which talk about uh, the return of al-Mahdi or the return of Isa salam to uh, al-Quds. And uh, these hadith seem to imply you know, very positive uh, uh, a very positive future for for Muslims in in Palestine, and and I suppose many have interpreted these hadith to say that uh, we are at this stage in our uh, in our lives uh, we are we are helpless in in uh, in practically dealing with this occupation. But sometime in the future, things will change. Uh, maybe it's not in our lifetime, but Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will change that situation. I mean, how should we approach? This type of thinking. Yeah, there are certain hadith. I don't want to get into the theological discussion about this because some people are taking it and okay, uh, believing in fatalism. Okay, we don't have to do anything. Let's wait until this person comes, until that person comes. Uh, we should separate our actions from you know these narrations. These narrations assuming that they are authentic, are not meant to act according to, but rather giving giving people good news. But the actions should be taken based on your agenda. How do you set up your agenda? What are your priorities? Our priorities shouldn't be just waiting for uh, this person to come or for that person to come. Our agenda should be, what do we need in order to create the change? The Arab society needs a change, whether in Palestine or in outside Palestine. How to make the change? This is what we need to focus on. And I would claim, in generally speaking, the change needs to be first intellectual. How to look to Islam? Do we look to Islam as a set of rituals, as dogma, as a spiritual religion detached from life? Do we believe in the notion of the nation state? So these concepts need to be, uh, how do we look at Sultan al-Ummah? Should we give away our rights, the Sultan, the power to rule? How can we educate our Ummah about this? These things need to be worked out before hoping for any other change. Ustad Iyad Hilal, it's great to have spoken to you once again, and you've uh, provided yet again some really fascinating thoughts about uh, the subject. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you and jazakallah khair for um, your attendance today. Inshallah, jazakallah khairan and thank you for inviting me and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help you and help all of us.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.